Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We, th- we thank you that you speak to us. And that because you are a God who speaks, we can know that you are there. We can know who you are. And we can put our trust and our faith in you. You ask us to do that, especially in the face of the things that threaten us, of the things that uh, fill us with fear, of the things that threaten to take away our trust and our faith in you. We pray that as we hear your word this morning, as we read through what David experienced and how he responded, that you would give us a great sense of what this was like for your son Jesus, and that you would encourage us to keep trusting you through it as well. And we pray this for your glory and ultimately for our unending joy in Jesus' name. Amen. We're all afraid of something. Sometimes they are silly things that we get over when we get older. When I was really young, I had an insane fear of caterpillars. I I, I just revolved. There was something in my stomach that turned every time I saw them. Now that I'm bigger, I'm mostly over it. I don't tend to scream and have a physical revulsion to them anymore. Again, when I was younger, one of the scariest things that I ever saw or witnessed was the Michael Jackson thriller video clip. You know, the one where all the zombies and the werewolves. And in order to get over that fear, I taught myself all the dance moves in the video clip. (laughs) Now, sometimes our fears are silly. And sometimes our fears are more serious. They can cause a physical reaction within us. Our bodies get physically sick because of something we're afraid of. Our our stomach gets into knots. Steph, my wife, is a little bit like this with spiders. Any spider bigger than a five-cent coin will bring about a physical reaction in her and she goes into panic mode. She wouldn't even watch the 20-second video of that ultra-cute Lucas the Spider video from last month. And I've just seen people turn away from that too. Sorry about that. She's not alone. A fear of spiders is often in the top three fears of all people. A few years ago I heard that more people fear spiders and public speaking than fear death. That's just astonishing to me. Right? People would be more afraid of getting up here and then having a huntsman spider crawl over this pulpit than they would fear death. We're all afraid of something. And we all have different reactions to fear as well. Every human has what is known as the fight or flight response. Sometimes it's known as the fight or flight or freeze response to stress. When we are faced with danger, we either fight our way out of it, we flee by running from it, or we sometimes freeze in the shock and the horror of the moment. As we open up Psalm 56, we'll see that fear is something that David himself experienced. Psalm 56, written by David, speaks of him being afraid. In that story in 1 Samuel 21 that we just read, when, we, when David hears that everyone knows he's in town, it causes him to be much afraid. It is the only time in David's story that we ever hear him being afraid. And then David says in the psalm, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, God. From this, a couple of questions are worth asking for us in this psalm this morning. First, how can I know that God is trustworthy when I am afraid? How can I put my trust in Him? And secondly, how do I go about putting my trust in God when I am afraid? 
Before we answer those questions uh, from the psalm, let's take a look, a little bit of a look at the backstory for this passage. You can see at the beginning of the psalm, the introduction heading, that it reads, To the choir master according to the dove on far, on far off terebinth, uh, miktam of David. All of that little there, the dove and the miktam, they're probably musical references. We have really no idea what they mean. But the context for this psalm is at the end of the introduction there. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, Josh read for us 1 Samuel 21, and that's the story that gives this psalm its context. See, previously in the book of Samuel, David has been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the true king of Israel. But there's an issue, because David is not just the only true king. There's already another king on the throne, Saul. And then in the story, David goes on to defeat Goliath. Remember that big hulking guy? And he gains this massive reputation as the great hero above Saul. Saul finds out about this. And he finds out about the anointing of David as the true king of Israel. And he gets really, really mad. So angry that he, he actually attempts to take the life of David. And so by 1 Samuel 21, David is now on the run. And so David runs off to Gath, which at first doesn't sound like anything serious. But remember, Gath is one of the five major Philistine cities. Philistine, as in Goliath the Philistine. As in David, the one who beat Goliath. As in David is now carrying around Goliath's massive sword and is trying to hide out in a major enemy city. I read one commentator in the week who said this, what David did was dangerous, and some might say reckless. And I think that's an understatement. Right? But it shows you how desperate David was. How desperate, and how much trouble was he facing from Saul, and how badly afraid are you of one man that you would run to your enemies to seek shelter. Now, when David arrives in Gath, Achish, the king of Gath, finds out. Uh, David's reputation is way too big to ignore. And that's when we read that when David hears that Achish knows that he's in town, it makes David much afraid. And then we, as we read, to get away from Achish, David pretends to be insane. He, 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 goes, he, he pretends to be mad. He claws at the doorways and the, on the, um, the front entrance of the town. And he drools and it's just a, a, he causes a bit of a scene. And then Achish thinks, ah, this is David, whatever, right? He's an idiot. I'm surrounded by idiots. What's one more idiot to add to the pack? And then David eventually, using that cover, flees to safety. Now, probably in the cave of Adullam, in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 there, David penned this psalm. And again, you can see, as we read the psalm, fear and being afraid comes up again and again. Glance over the psalm with me. Psalm 56, and see how much it comes up. Verse 1, at the end of the verse, first line. Man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. Right, verse 2, my enemies trample on me all day long. Again, David feels this constant, unending sense that his enemies are out to get him. And they are Saul, and they are. Saul is constantly searching for him and breathing down his neck. And the Philistines he was staying with, they weren't his friends either. They were also out to get him. He constantly feels surrounded. Uh, verse 2 again, many attack me proudly. Verse 3, he admits to being afraid. Verse 5, 
all day long. Again, this, this constant sense. All day long, he feels like his enemies are injuring his cause. They are working against him. Carry on in verse 5. All their thoughts are against me for evil. This is, this is not someone who's just paranoid. He really feels this sense. There's, there's experience to back up what he's fearing. Verse 6. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. He, he feels like he's being stalked from the shadows by an unseen but real enemy, planning evil against him, waiting to strike. Right, this is a highly stressful and anxiety-filled time in David's life. And you get a sense in this psalm as well that David had to cope with all of this stress alone. The psalm here connects David's suffering and fear with, with his particular situation on the run from Saul and the Philistines. He's been anointed the true king of Israel, but it's obviously not living as the true king should be at the moment. Life for David was not always smooth. Now, the Bible is very realistic about human experience. It's very aware that life is not always happy and smooth sailing. There are many psalms which speak of how hard and difficult life is. And here, David is giving his readers a profound sense of what it was like to have no friends, no support network, and to be surrounded by enemies on his left and right. But this psalm is not just a woe is me kind of, kind of song. It's not a look at me and all the hardship I'm going through, pity me kind of piece of scripture. Right? Rather, David is sharing his intense fears and anxiety at this point to point us to who is going to get him through it all. See, the key to understanding this psalm is not to focus on the fear. It's not to focus on what makes David afraid. The key to this psalm is in the various responses that he has to fear. We know that there are various responses to fear. We've already touched on a few. When something threatens us, some of us have an inclination to fighting back and defending ourselves. Uh, Others have an inclination towards fleeing, running away from the threat, and still others freeze when they encounter something scary. Think about David. When Saul was after him, he refused to fight back because he knew that Saul was God's anointed king. And it was wrong. It was wrong for David to lift his hand against God's anointed one. When David was surrounded by the Philistines, he would have known he was seriously outnumbered and outgunned. Only an idiot would fight there. He could flee, but again, surrounded by the Philistines, it was not going to be easy. And if David froze and did nothing, well, that probably wouldn't have done him any good either, given that the Philistines were ready to grab him and exact their revenge on him for Goliath. There are many and various responses to fear that David could have opted for. And what does he do? He responds with, trust. He trusts God. You see it there in verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Now, as odd as it might sound, when David started acting insane in order to escape from Gath and the Philistines, He did it trusting God to deliver him. And God did. 
God used David's trick to help him escape safely. Now, why did, God, uh, why did David trust God in this way? Again, you can see it in verse 4. In God whose word I praise, whose word I praise, in God I trust. Right? David trusted God because God had spoken. The word that David was trusting was probably the word that he and Samuel had received in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, when he was anointed, when, David, when Samuel was looking for the true king to anoint. All right? This word came to both of them. Arise, anoint David, him, for this is he. Trusting, David wasn't crowned king yet, but he was, God, God spoke, God gave David a word and, David, and identified David as the one who would be given the kingdom. All right? David wasn't crowned king yet, but, God, but trusted God would keep his word. And trusting that word that God had given him, David asked in verse 4, what can flesh do to me? What can people do against me? What's the worst that people can do when God has already promised me a kingdom. When all hope is gone and fear is your only friend, it is trusting God and His Word which gets you through. And David articulates for us something fantastic about trusting God in verses 8 and 9. You see, it's not just that God will help David at the very end, but there are promises and comforts even in the present stress. Verse 8 You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Now look again at verse 8. How precious, how precious are God's people to God? Seriously, how much does he care? One of the extra stresses when things don't seem to be going well in life, especially when we feel afraid, is that we can fall into the trap of thinking that God doesn't know or doesn't care or is uninvolved. But verse 8 smashes that idea back into the hole of faithlessness where it belongs. God does care. He profoundly cares. He cares so much that he is recording every instance that you feel threatened by something or someone. He collects your tears, making, marking every single one of them. He records all of these in his personal book because one day, one day he promises to vanquish all of God's enemies and he promises to wipe away and dry every tear that we cry. Maybe you've grown up and been taught that when life gets you down, you've got to try harder to pick yourself up. Right? Have you ever heard that phrase, God helps those who help themselves? That is a rubbish statement. David was helpless. And he threw himself fully and wholly onto God. And so he writes in verse 9 that his enemies will not have the final laugh. They will one day be turned back. This I know, God is for me. And David knew that if God was for you, who could be against you? What nation, what enemy, what threat could ever take you away from God? God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps 
the utterly helpless. He helps those who recognize that they need help. And it's the word of God that makes trust possible. God spoke, God made promises, and that was enough for David to pin all his hopes. See, in David's story, his hopes were realized. He was able to escape. And, and so he praises God in verses 12 to 13. God has delivered his soul from death, from a, a place of endless fear and, and hopelessness. God has kept his feet from falling and instead made him stand upright and walk before God. To walk before God was uh, another way of saying he was kept in right relationship with God. God was his God. And God made sure that David, his anointed king, would not see death before being crowned. Now this psalm has a great way of voicing the fears and joys of God's people. And in some ways it's appropriate that we, we look at this and, and we, we hear an echo of our own experience. That there are songs, these, these psalms, they are songs of God's people and they echo a range of emotions from joy and elations to, to sorrow and confusion and fear and sometimes despair. The Psalms are quite personal for a lot of us as they have articulated for us how we feel at various moments in life. If this year has been a hard one for you, let me encourage you to read the Psalms and find a fellow traveler through difficult times. And that's why Jesus quoted the Psalms so often in his ministry. It's also why the Psalms are the most often quoted or alluded to parts of the Old Testament in the immediate lead up to Jesus' death on the cross. Right, remember David's, David was God's anointed king. The word anointed in Hebrew is the word Messiah. The Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah in the New Testament is the word Christ. David was God's Christ. And what David experienced as God's Old Testament Christ when he was on the run from Saul and when, he was, when the Philistines caught him, all of that experience foreshadows the reality and the hostility that Jesus would face. Jesus, the ultimate and greatest Christ of the Bible. See, David is a shadow of Jesus to come. So the opposition, so as opposition to Jesus grew, you could say that he was reliving the experience of David in this psalm, but in a bigger and in a more intense way. If, David's, if David experienced this level of wickedness, how much more would David's great, 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 great grandson, the promised eternal Christ King, how much more wickedness would he experience? They not only opposed Jesus, but they would eventually crucify him. Even Jesus' birth that we celebrate at this time of the year has with it a reminder from the very beginning why Jesus was born at all. Remember the wise men who visited Jesus? They bring along three gifts. They gave him gold because Jesus is royalty and they recognize that. And what else did they give him? frankincense and myrrh. They are expensive perfumes and spices which were used in burial traditions. From the very beginning, whether the wise men knew it or not, they were actually demonstrating, they were reminding the readers of the Gospels that Jesus was born ultimately to die 
later in life. And the Gospels remind us that this was no ordinary death in his sleep, right? There was no growing old for Jesus, no quiet retirement by the beach or in the mountains, no peaceful death in his sleep. Jesus died surrounded by his enemies, surrounded by people who wanted to do him harm. The fears that David felt in this psalm are fears that Jesus knew very well. Right, the Gospel of Luke records for us that, uh, that as the thought of his impending painful death swelled within Jesus, he sweated drops of blood. Now, whether this is metaphorical or a medical condition, the point is that he was in agony. He was in tremendous fear and anxiety with the weight of his death on his shoulders. And like David, but in a bigger way, Jesus faced up to his fears by trusting God. In his final hours, in his final trials, he constantly quoted scripture and threw himself upon the plans and the purposes of his father. And then Jesus died so that we might experience fully and finally what David experienced in part, deliverance from our greatest enemy and the joy of walking in God's light. The great enemy, death, is destroyed. It might only rank as the third highest fear behind public speaking and spiders, but in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more fear of death, for death will have been destroyed. And I'm pretty sure public speaking will be easy, and spiders will be as cute as Lucas the spider. And Jesus died so that we might have the joy of walking in God's light, walking in true and right relationship and fellowship with God. No longer his enemy, but now he's the eternal friend and child, beloved. The Apostle Paul summed it up best in that mountain of a chapter in Romans 8. He concludes with a series of rhetorical questions from verse 31. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 8. We'll flick through this uh, now. Romans 8, verse 31. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer to that question? No one. Why? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for you and shows it by giving his son to deliver you eternally, then who in the world is going to stop that? And if he gave his son, will he not graciously give us everything we need now to keep persevering and trusting him in the face of our trials? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's the answer to that? No one. Why? Carry on in verse 33. It is God who justifies. God is the ultimate judge. And as the ultimate judge, he has made his decision in our favor. And who has the power to overturn that? No one. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Again, answer, no one. Why? Carry on in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is our advocate. He is our defense lawyer. You've got the one who created the universe defending you. 
who gave his life for you. Ain't nobody going to bring any accusation now that will stick. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written in Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That quote there is is a reminder that persecution and suffering is the experience of God's people from all time. No, in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he ends on these sweet, beautiful, magnificent words in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything that could possibly threaten your security in life, everything that could possibly cause you to be afraid to your very core, none of that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the good news of Psalm 56, of where Psalm 56 takes us to the cross of Jesus and to his unending, inseparable love for us. Three things to take away from this psalm today. First, we know that the experience of David here was foreshadowing the experience of Jesus. We know that what Jesus experienced was on a whole other level of pain and suffering and fear and anxiety and stress. And in the Gospels, Jesus warns us that a disciple is not above his master. If we are followers of Jesus, his disciples, we should expect... Well, sorry, we should not expect a life free from trials of fear and anxiety and stress. We should expect to experience, to some degree or another, the fear of being surrounded by enemies on all sides and people who wish to do us harm. Now, thankfully, uh, for most of us, we live in relatively safe countries. But for the majority of Christians across this world, Persecution and fearing for your life is a relatively common occurrence. Psalm 56 is their daily experience. Now, some of the things I think we need to do better at is we need to do better at educating ourselves on the trials and the needs of our persecuted brothers and sisters, praying for them and working out how we can generously give generously towards them. You begin with uh, organizations like Barnabas Fund or Voice of the Martyrs. They're good places to start. And we also need to prepare ourselves. We live in an increasingly hostile society. And we prepare ourselves by knowing the Bible better, by sharing the gospel with greater boldness, and by living out with greater conviction the great news that nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And doing so will sometimes be scary. 
Right? Fear, it will be a fearful thing. But one of the encouragements from this psalm of David is that fear and faith, they, they, they might seem like opposite things and incompatible, but they are often roommates living together. Right? Faith does not mean never being afraid or having doubts. The true proof of faith is that when fears arise within us, we resist them and we prevent them from gaining the upper hand. See, if our expectation of the Christian life is that it will be easy and peaceful, then we're in for a big shock. Uh, John Calvin says it nicely when he says, in a tranquil state of mind, there is no scope for the exercise of hope. He's saying that fear is a necessary part of experiencing life so that faith is exercised enough to make it strong. Right? Faith is like the muscles in your body. We need to exercise our muscles to make sure that they are strong and fit. When you don't exercise your muscles, they atrophy. They slowly become weaker and weaker. I know this because I, I have a Saturday morning exercise group. And if I miss one week or two... Right? And then all of a sudden, it's not Zach training us, but Ben. I'm in for a world of pain because my muscles have relaxed. They've started to lose their strength. And the same is true with our faith. If it is not tested, it will become weak. That's why David seems to welcome the fear he experiences. He knows that God is keeping a record of it. He knows that God will judge those against him. He knows that God will deliver him. And at every moment of fear, it gives him another chance to exercise his trust in God. And he exercises his trust in God by listening to and trusting God's word to him. Right? It's the word of God that makes it possible to move from fear to trust. David was given a very small word to rely on. Jesus had the Old Testament promises to trust in. And now we have this whole book. So trust it. The more you know it, the better you will trust it. I, I, I feel like over the last few weeks, I've, I've landed on the same thing again and again. Read the word. Because if, the more you know the word, the more you know that God has spoken to you, the more you will trust him. And I need to land on it again because da that's where David landed. That's where Jesus is pushing us to trust the word, to know it better so that we will trust it more. And the more you know it, the more likely you will persevere to the very end. I've had a number of conversations with people this year who are struggling in their faith who are wrestling with weakness and weariness. And I've asked them, how well is your Bible reading going? And the same answer comes up again and again. Not so great at this time. And I want to encourage people to keep reading the Word. Keep reading this Word so that you will keep trusting it and growing your trust in it. And as you do that, it keeps you persevering to the very end. It's not, it's, it's not a difficult thing to do. You don't need a PhD, you don't need a degree to be able to read God's Word. But it is hard work. It's the hard work of constantly and daily reading it. The daily grind of reading and receiving, of meditating and nourishing ourselves through it. And trusting in His message in the Bible, persevering and believing in it, 
It ends with being delivered from all our fears and our worries. That's the end point. That's the end goal. David rejoiced and praised God because he got delivered. Jesus got delivered from death, trusting his Father all the way through his fears. How much more will we be delivered from everything that we will be afraid of if we trust him at his word? Let me pray. Father in heaven, you speak to us, and because you do, we can trust you so much. So help us to do that. When fears arise, when the darkness seems like it is prevailing, we ask that you will help us to know you better, to trust you, to call out upon you, and to look forward to being delivered fully and finally at last. Help us to not live with a false impression of the Christian life as a one of ease and comfort. Help us remember that we disciples of your son are not above him. We will expect this as well. But we pray you'd help us to live with fear and faith, but ultimately that faith would conquer, for it is more powerful and will never overcome fear. And we thank you for the great promises of your word. Help us to believe them and trust them and to overcome our unbelief as well. And we pray this for your glory and ultimately our eternal joy in the precious, wonderful, saving name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.